0: I invite you to turn with me to two passages of Scripture, Haggai chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12. Again, that's Haggai chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12. While you're finding those two passages of Scripture, let me make two introductory remarks that I pray, I trust, will serve you well this morning. Now, the first is this when it comes to studying the Bible, we need to always remember that God's revelation is progressive. And so, what we have in the Bible is God's Word. Essentially, what we have in the Bible is God's self revelation, His self disclosure to man. He shows Himself, He manifests Himself, He reveals Himself, He declares what He is like. And so, too, He shows us His eternal plan of salvation, His eternal plan of redemption. Very important for us, very crucial for us to understand that his revelation is progressive. It begins in germinal form in the book of Genesis, and it is developed, it progresses. Now why I am am emphasizing this is for the following reason. It means that truth shines brightest where? In the New Testament. And so if we want to understand the Old Testament, we study it through the light, that is through the lens of the New Testament. The New Testament does not correct the Old Testament. That's borderline heresy. The New Testament does not correct the Old Testament. But the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament cannot be fully understood nor appreciated apart from Christ's salvific work as revealed in the New. Very important when it comes to studying the Bible. Again, that we understand, we comprehend, we're very clear on this, that God's revelation is progressive. Second introductory remark concerns prophecy and the interpretation of prophecy. A book like Haggai, where we are at the moment. When it comes to studying prophecy, we need to be clear that the prophets speak into an immediate context, an immediate framework. There's always something going on. The prophets do not speak in a manner that is isolated from the historical context in which they find themselves. And so they are speaking, in the first instance, to immediate circumstances. There is a framework in which it is given. There's immediate application. But also, equally true and equally important, their prophecies project beyond the immediate into the future, pointing to the Messiah and his kingdom. Here's the thing, and here's where it gets a little tricky. In the prophetic books, in the prophetic ministry, and in the prophetic message, uh, the coming of Christ is often clouded. Uh, The prophets do not make a clear distinction between his first coming and his second coming. The prophetic perspective, from their vantage point, from where they're writing, it's almost like looking at two mountaintops, uh, one immediately behind the one in front. So you have a mountain in front of you, another mountain behind you. What can you see from your perspective? You can only see the first mountain. The second mountain is behind. The second mountain might be miles, thousands of miles behind, but you can't see it. All you can see is the first one. So, too, in the prophetic vision, the prophetic perspective, They look ahead, they project beyond their immediate circumstances, the immediate framework in which they are ministering, and they point to Christ's coming. But they make no differentiation between his first coming and his second coming. Extremely crucial, extremely important when it comes to our reading of, understanding of, and interpretation of prophetic books. Now, with all that said, follow along. As I read for us, Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses, and then skip over quickly to Hebrews 12. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, just before you turn to Hebrews 12, go back just for a moment, zero in again on what we read in verse 6, the word of the Lord. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, take that verse, turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read for you, beginning in verse 26. At that time, he's referring to Sinai, Mount Sinai. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, what do we have here? An echo from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now keep your finger there, or a pen, or a bulletin, keep something there, because we're going to end up there in a few moments. But back with me now to the book of Haggai. Important to grasp, we are, when we open the book of Haggai, we are stepping back in time. We're turning back the clock. We are going back 2,000 500 years, give or take, a decade or two. And we are going back into the history of the nation of Israel. And we are going back to those days when the Babylonian Empire overran, overthrew the southern kingdom of Judah, deported countless Jews to the city of Babylon. The year was 586. After some time in Babylon, God stirs the heart of the king of Persia. The Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire. God stirs the heart of of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he issues a decree allowing those Jews living in Babylon who want to, to return home to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. A remnant, maybe 40,000, 50,000 Jews, make the long sojourn, the long journey from the city of Babylon back to the city of Jerusalem and they commence work on the temple. After some time, they give up. They lay the foundation, maybe make a little start on the walls, and then they just simply walk away. And so what God does, God, God is a marvelous God, is performing a marvelous work in a marvelous way. And so what he does is he sends two men. The name of the first, Zechariah the prophet. We have a book named after him. We have his prophecy in the Old Testament. The name of the second, You guessed it, Haggai, the book we're looking at right here. And so God sends these prophets, we're concerned primarily with Haggai, he sends Haggai to the remnant with a word of exhortation. Really a word of rebuke, a stern word of rebuke. And the prophet Haggai comes to the remnant and he accuses them basically of two things. The first is this, they had invented convenient excuses. The reason they had stopped working on the temple was man-made. They had invented it. Oh, it's not time for us to complete this project. It's not time for the temple to be rebuilt. They had other concerns. They had other interests. They had simply walked away from the work. And so the prophet rebukes them for having invented convenient excuses. And he rebukes rebukes them secondly for what? Their misplaced priorities. They had followed misplaced priorities. They were more concerned with their earthly ease and comfort than with the reconstruction of the house of God. And so Haggai, he rails against them. Twice he declares, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider firstly that God has brought a drought upon you. This drought is not the problem. This drought is a symptom of the problem. It is, a, it is symptomatic of the fact that your hearts have turned now from God. You have misplaced priorities. You're more concerned with earthly comfort than you are with God's glory as manifested in his house. Consider your ways. Secondly, consider your ways. Consider what it is that God wants. Consider what it is that pleases God, the revelation and the manifestation of his glory in this house. And Praise God, the remnant responds. The Spirit of God is at work among them, and they respond in fearful obedience. That's chapter 1. We enter into chapter 2. A month has passed. And they've picked up their shovels. Uh, They've picked up their picks. They're working again with mortar and brick, and they're working away. A month has passed, uh, but they're disappointed. As a matter of fact, they're burdened with disappointment. And so God again sends Haggai, not with a word of exhortation, not with a stern word of rebuke, but with a word of encouragement. As a matter of fact, this word of encouragement consists of three messages. It's easy to identify these messages because each begins with a date. And so look firstly, chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So there's the first message. It goes through to verse 9. Now look at verse 10. We have a second date, time indicator. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And that continues through to verse 19. Now look at verse 20, a third time indicator. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Three messages making up the second chapter of the book of Haggai as God sends his prophet, the mediator between his people and himself. He sends his prophet to a disappointed people with a word of encouragement. And what we're concerned with today is that first message, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I want you to notice three things. Firstly, I want you to notice that Haggai, The Lord, through Haggai, begins with a question, verse 3. There are actually three questions, but it's the third question that that really matters, that really gets to the the heart of the matter. But he begins right at the outset of verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So let's have a show of hands. Among the 40,000, 50,000, put your hand up, step forward, If you're old enough, probably over 50, 55 years of age, and you lived in Jerusalem at one time or the surrounding area, and you saw the temple before Nebuchadnezzar, the the Babylonians utterly burned it and destroyed it and laid waste to it, and you've come back now. I want a show of hands. Who was here? Who saw it? Who remembers? That's the first question. Then he adds another question on top of it, the middle of verse 3. How do you see it now? And so I want you to make a comparison. Those of you whose memory is still lucid, you can still think that far back. You still have a clear picture of Solomon's temple in all its glory. I want you to compare the picture you have of it in your mind's eye with what you see now. You have this foundation laid. The walls are starting to go up. Compare the two. And then he adds a third question. Again, this brings us to the heart of the matter. Right at the end of verse 3. Is it not as... Nothing in your eyes. He does not correct their assessment. What's he saying? You're right. Uh, What you are building is rather pathetic. Uh, Simply from appearance, the vantage point of physical appearance, when you compare what you're building, when you look at your work project, when you look at this temple that you're erecting, that you're building, that you're constructing... And you compare it with that temple that existed that Solomon built. And those of you who can remember, when you compare the two, does not this temple, does not this building you have now set your hands to construct, is it not as nothing in your eyes? You are right. If you're just lo- making that comparison, and if you're just looking at what you are doing, you have every reason to be disappointed. That's his question. But then he adds to it, notice the second division, a command. Actually, there are three commands, beginning in verse 4. The first is this, yet now, be strong. He repeats it three times, directing it to three different groups of people. Yet now be strong, who? O oh, Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? He is the grandson of the man who was king over Judah at the time of the Babylonian invasion and deportation. He is heir to the throne. He is the rightful king. He is not king. He is a political leader. He is some sort of governor. He is not king, but he is heir to the throne. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. He repeats it, directing it to someone else now. Be strong, O Joshua. Who is Joshua? He tells us. Son of Who Who is Jehoshadak? He was the high priest at the time of the Babylonian invasion and deportation. So Joshua is the high priest. So here you have the the political leader, Zerubbabel, the religious leader, Joshua, but he adds the commandment a third time, declares the commandment a third time. Same verse, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Your disappointment is creating fainting spells. Uh, Your disappointment is creating weakness, weakness. Here's what I want you to do. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Now he adds a second commandment, still in verse 4, right towards the end work. And he adds a third commandment, right at the end of verse 5, fear not. And so I know you are a disappointed people. I know that as you compare what you are building with Solomon's temple. You cannot compare the two. What you are doing pales in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. From all appearances, simply from the human vantage point, you're right to be disappointed. But here's what I command you to do. I command you to be strong. I command you to work. Put your back into it. And I command you not to fear. Now, he doesn't simply throw these commandments up in the air. These aren't suspended in air. He he, he grounds these commandments in a most magnificent truth. Look at it right there at the end of verse 4. Work for because I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And so what's he doing here? Again, follow through the logic, the reason here. Yes, you're disappointed. You should be disappointed. Here's what I command you to do. Work, be strong, do not fear. And and in order to enable you to work and be strong and not fear, I want you to look back in time. And he draws their minds, forces them to look back over 800 years in their history. Back to, that, back to that defining moment in the nation's history when God redeemed them from slavery, from bondage in the land of Egypt. He led them across the sea. He led them to Mount Sinai. He established a theocracy. He entered into a covenant with them. He gave them the law. He then preserved them throughout their wilderness journey, sojourn. He went before them across the Jordan River. He gave them victory, military victory over the Canaanites and other inhabitants of the land. Over the next 300 years, they went through this cycle of apostasy and rebellion and renewal as they turned away from the covenant of Sinai and as God sent nations to invade them and discipline them and punish them and then when he heard their cry he would send judges to miraculously wonderfully deliver them and then he united them all under a king a manly king Saul a godly king David And then we come to the the climax of the kingdom during the reign of of Solomon when it extended well beyond the borders of Israel. And then the kingdom was split because of the nation's sin and apostasy and rebellion, split into a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And then we have the birth of this prophetic movement when God sends prophet after prophet, demanding of the nation covenant faithfulness that they remember the covenant they had made with the one true living God at Sinai and forsake their spiritual apostasy, forsake their spiritual whoredom, and forsake their idolatry, and they turn deaf ears. And So finally, in 722 BC, what does God do? He raises up a foreign empire, the Assyrian Empire, and they swoop down like ravenous wolves and completely destroy the northern kingdom. And then he delays the judgment of the southern kingdom another century. And in 586, he raises up another empire, the Babylonian Empire, to swoop down like ravenous wolves and destroy the southern kingdom and deport those Jews who survived far off to the land of Babylon. And then he began to stir in the king of another empire, Persia, permitting a remnant to return from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. What is God's point? He's saying, remnant, people, look back. Take stock. 800, 900 years of history. 800, 900 years, almost 1,000 years of sin and rebellion and apostasy and idolatry on your part. And nothing but covenant faithfulness on my part. Almost 1,000 years of civil, social, political upheaval. And the rise and the fall of, of, of civilizations and empires. The deportation of, of you to a foreign land. And now your restoration in the land. And now the reconstruction of this temple. I want you to be strong. And I want you to work. And I don't want you to fear because I want you to understand this. I want you, a phrase I often use, I want you to get it and I want you to get it good. This has never been about you. This has always been about me. It has always been about my plan from before the foundation of the earth. It has always been according to my plan in eternity. My plan to glorify myself through the coming of my son, the promised Messiah. Look back. And understand that what you're doing now, although pitiful in your eyes, and although you're overcome with disappointment, understand that this is the unfolding of an eternal plan. My plan. And so I want you to be strong, fortified, strengthen yourself. Be men, is what he's saying. I want you to put your shoulder into it. I want you to work with excitement and enthusiasm. And you have no reason to fear. I am in your midst. I have always been in your midst. But then there's a third division in these verses, isn't there? There's a great promise. Begins in verse 6, goes through to verse 9. I say there's a promise, there's an overarching promise. Uh, I think we can put it like this: Uh, God promises the remnant, um, I am going to do something spectacular. That's that's the that's the heart, that's the essence, the crux of his promise. I am going to do something spectacular. And so you're disappointed. I'm commanding you to be strong. I'm commanding you to work. I'm commanding you not to fear. You need a reason? Well, look back. And remember, I have always been in your midst. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm doing something wonderful. I also now want you to look ahead. I am doing something spectacular. Of which your work is part. He promises four things. Beginning in verse 6, we find the first one. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, implying what? Something has already happened. Yet once more, in a little while, here's promise number one, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Two things we need to be clear on. Shaking. What's that that about? Well, You do the cross references, you get into the book of Psalms, back in the book of Exodus, and it becomes apparent that this, this, this term, this expression, shaking, denotes change. I, I will shake. That is, I will change. I'm going to bring about a spectacular, momentous, defining change. What is the object of this shaking? What is the object of this change? I will shake the heavens and the earth. We hear that phrase, the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The our minds should immediately go where? Back to the book of beginnings. Back to the very beginning, Genesis 1, one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The expression in Genesis denotes what? The totality of creation. Moses, who wrote Genesis, is not leaving us in any doubt. When it comes to the universe, when it comes to the cosmos, they have an author. They have a creator. He is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the totality of creation. And now what is God declaring through his prophet Haggai? Yet once more, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I am going to change the cosmos. Something spectacular is going to happen. Something magnificent is going to take place. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the entire created order, to such an extent that I bring about something new. That's the first promise. He adds a second promise. Brings us into verse 7. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Who's he speaking to? Jews. He's speaking to his his covenant people, those with whom he entered into a covenant at Mount Sinai. And here he teaches them, he reminds them what has always been in his mind's eye, what has always been in view, going back to the covenant he had made with Abraham when he promised Abraham, in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, for this, this, this period of time, 800, 900 years, I have focused exclusively on my people, Israel. But understand this, what I have always had in view is the nations. And something spectacular, something miraculous, something magnificent is coming. I will shake the nations whereby they enter in. There's a third promise, still in verse 7, middle of the verse. I will fill this house. What's he referring to? The temple they're building. The temple the remnant are building. That that work project, which has caused so much disappointment from their vantage point, here's what I want you to grasp. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now look what he adds in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So how did he begin this prophecy through Haggai? With a question. Who among you remembers the former house? The former temple, Solomon's temple. How does it compare to what you're building now? Does does not what you are building now appear as nothing in your eyes? What you are involved in right now, doesn't it seem to be rather pathetic? Well, I want you to understand this. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I am going to shake the nations and the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Right now, from your vantage point, you make this comparison and you think Solomon's temple was far more glorious than this temple and that this temple is rather pitiful. But understand, I'm going to do something that will make Solomon's temple appear pitiful in comparison to what you're building. Then he adds a fourth promise, right at the end of verse 9. I will give peace in this place. I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Since the time of the fall, there has not been peace. Since the time of the fall, all creation has been marred, scarred by hostility, enmity. But a day is coming, says the Lord. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I am going to shake the nations, and they're going to enter in. I'm going to make the glory of this house far greater than the glory of that former house. And I am going to bring peace. Now remember, what's the context? He is speaking these words to a disappointed people. A people who from a simply human perspective vantage point have every reason to be disappointed. But he urges them, look back and consider what I have done in your history. He urges them, look forward and see how what is the cause of your disappointment is actually working according to my plan to shake the heavens and the earth, to shake the nations, to fill this house with glory, and to bring peace. Now, what's he talking about? Now, there's a good question. What's he talking about? What's he referring to? Well, do you still have your Bibles open to Hebrews 12? This is where Hebrews 12 steps into the fray. And look at what we read, again, beginning in verse 26. And notice that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews speaks, identifies, mentions two shakings. If you've got the sermon notes before you, they may be particularly helpful here because I describe them in very detailed, pointed terms, succinctly in those sermon notes. Look at verse 26. At that time, and it becomes obvious if you read earlier in the chapter, he's referring to Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the establishing of the theocracy, the establishing of that covenant between God and the nation of Israel. At that time, his voice shook the earth. It only shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Something, a far greater shaking is in view. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaking. So the things that belong to that old covenant, they're shakable. They can be changed. They're alterable. They were never intended to be permanent. That is things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving what? A kingdom. That cannot be shaken. Two shakings. I'm going to read from the sermon notes. So I'm very concise, very clear here. The first is local in effect. It refers to what transpired at Mount Sinai. It was limited in scope. It concerned the nation of Israel. And it was temporary in duration. There is a second shaking in view. It is universal in effect, the cosmos. It is unlimited in scope, the nations. And it is eternal in duration. We possess, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now here's, and this is why I opened with these introductory remarks, Here's where the prophetic perspective gets tricky and gets a little cloudy. In the prophetic perspective, Haggai's perspective, there is no distinguishing between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how are we to understand this universal cosmic shaking that takes place by virtue of the Lord Jesus? Here's how we are to understand it. It is commenced, it is initiated with his first coming and it is completed with his second coming. Or to put it another way, at his first coming, his first advent, he inaugurates a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. At his second coming, we have the consummation of that kingdom. So here's what I want you to do. This is difficult. This is difficult, but I think you're up to it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think, I want you to, to get up, Get up out of the here and the now and my life and what's going on with me and, my, and the little life and the little world in which I live. And I want you to get up and see things what we call eschatologically. I want you to get up and see the big picture and focus in on three events. Over here, creation. Think in terms of that category creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second category I want you to think of is in terms of an historical event, the incarnation. Christ's first advent, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And the third category I want you to think of in terms of is his second coming, when he will come in triumphant glory. So we have creation, we have Christ's first coming, we have Christ's second coming. Now go all the way back to creation. And I want you to think of that phrase, heavens and earth, that in the beginning God created what? The heavens and earth. And the earth, they are his handiwork. He simply spoke them, breathed them into existence. But by virtue of the fall, what happens to the totality of creation? Because of Adam's fall, what happens to the cosmos? It is subjected to futility. The created order, the entire created order, weighs is weighed down right now under a curse. But at Christ's first advent, by virtue of his death... And the shedding of his blood at Calvary's cross, what has he done? He has reconciled all things in the heavens and on the earth to himself. And the Lord Jesus stands as what? Right now, the head of a new creation. And yet, we await what? The completion of that shaking. So move now into the third category the second glorious triumphant return of the lord jesus christ which will usher in the completion the termination of this shaking a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell now all the way back to creation and now i want you to think in terms of humanity and i want you to remember the first man adam and the first woman eve representative of humanity and remember the bliss That they enjoyed. Remember that they walked with God in the garden and enjoyed intimate fellowship with God. And remember what transpired as a consequence of the fall. They were cast out of the garden. They were cast from God's presence. A cherubim and a flaming sword guarded the way back, pointing to what? Declaring what? That because of man's sin there is now separation between God and man god will not he refuses to dwell in the midst of man and then beautifully and wonderfully as we make our way through the old testament he calls forth a people and they set up a tabernacle and the shekinah glory dwells in the most holy place the tabernacle is replaced by a temple and the shekinah glory dwells in the most holy place but it's limited isn't it who got in there only the great high priest once a year on the day of atonement. It's limited. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to the need for something. Please understand, friend, the temple was never the end in view. The temple was, it was it's immaterial, neither here nor there. It was declaring to the, to the need for a greater reality, God's dwelling presence among us. And we come to the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see? We have the Lord Jesus Christ preaching in the temple, being presented in the temple. The Lord Jesus healing uh, healing people in the temple, performing miracles in the temple. The Lord Jesus cleansing the temple. And then the Lord Jesus having the downright audacity to declare, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. And this he said in reference to his body. You see, the glory of the Lord has returned to the temple. In the person of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God now dwells among men in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But come now to this third category. We're awaiting what? We're awaiting his return. Yes, right now, praise God, we are made one with Christ by the Holy Spirit who unites us to him. And positionally speaking, we are seated with him in the heavenly places and we enjoy every blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, praise God, we are built, being built up into a household of God and the Lord Jesus dwells in our midst by virtue of the Holy Spirit. But, 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 but there's no consummation yet, is there? We're still waiting for something. We're still anticipating something. We're still longing for something. The scripture describes it as the beatific vision. When the Lord Jesus shall return in glory, the Lamb will dwell visibly in the midst of his people and fill this earth with his glory. Now go all the way back to creation, the first category. And consider not only the heavens and the earth, creation itself. Consider not not only the the, the, the impact it has upon humanity and upon the nations, but consider, consider also the way in which God's unfolding plan throughout Scripture focuses on not merely one man, one woman, but a multitude of people. And so we see by virtue of the fall, yes, Adam and Eve separated from, cast out of God's presence. And, yes, we see man's sin and rebellion to such an extent that he sends a universal flood and then renews his covenant with Noah. And then, again, yes, we see man's sin and rebellion to such an extent at the Tower of Babel that he confuses their language and he spreads man over the face of the earth, the nations, Genesis 11. And then what does he do immediately in Genesis 12? He calls one man. His name is Abram, later Abraham. He calls Isaac. He calls Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. He enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel. But understand, his plans were never restricted to the nation of Israel. His plans concerning the nation of Israel were were directed to and always had in view his covenant promise with Abraham that in your seed, singular, one man, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I'm entering into a covenant now with Israel for a temporary time period. It's going to serve a specific purpose. And understand, yes, the nations, they're spread across the earth. I'm not going to leave them without witness. They still have general revelation. They still have creation. But I'm restricting my special revelation, the oracles of God, the scriptures, to the nation of Israel. But understand, I have something in view. I have something in view. And we come to the second category. And the advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we hear such cries out of John's gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world He gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And wonderfully, after His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, He sends forth the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. And what do we hear as the Spirit of God It comes out, historically speaking, this baptism of the Spirit of God, forming, creating, making the body of Christ. What do we hear? Languages. All these people hearing the gospel and hearing Peter preach in their own language, pointing to what? Symbolizing what? Declaring what? That what had happened centuries before the Tower of Babel has now been undone. He has come for the nations, that in Christ all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And just prior to his ascension, what does he declare? All authority is given to me in the heavens and on earth. Go. Here's what I want you to do. You make disciples of every nation. And at his second advent, his second coming, we'll have the completion of that shaking. What? We will have a culturally diverse multitude of glorified people worshiping the Lamb. You see, friends, uh, the essence of the gospel isn't God loves me. When the essence of the gospel becomes God loves me, evangelicalism simply becomes a selfish, self-centered, self-serving movement. The essence of the gospel is not God loves me. The essence of the gospel is this, our glory is God has a glorious plan to glorify himself, a part of which is he chooses to love us. We are part of something much bigger. Oh, the need, once in a while, maybe daily, maybe moment by moment, to get above the daily grind, to get above the frustration and the disappointment, to get above our sinfulness and our problems and our struggles and all that's transpiring in our lives, and to take a survey back in time, and to take a survey ahead in time, and understand this, that God promised, I will shake the heavens and the earth. He has done so in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are simply awaiting the consummation. That God has promised, I will shake the nation." He has done so in the advent of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and right now in the going forth of the gospel. And all we are waiting for is the completion of his people, every tribe from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. He has promised, I will fill this house with glory. And he has done so in the first advent of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the incarnated word of God. And all we are waiting is what? The consummation of that shaking when the Lord Jesus will return in triumph and in glory. Not as a meek lamb, but as a conquering king. That's what he's doing for these people. That's what he's doing for us. You're disappointed. I nearly said get over it. I won't say get over it. Get up above it is what he's saying to these people. Yes, comparisons, you're right, it's pitiful. But I want you to work, I want you to be strong, and I don't want you to fear. How? I want you to remember what I have been doing and my hand has been in it all along, all these centuries. The unfolding of your, hist- your history is the unfolding of my plan. And I want you to look ahead. And I want you to understand what has been inaugurated in Christ, will be consummated in a coming day. Let me give you three points of application to be specific. Three points, and I'll hurry here. Our time is going. The first is this wonderful truth. God has filled his house with glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. God has filled his house with glory. Hear this, friend. We do not worship a God who is far away, but a God who has drawn near in the incarnation. He has come so close as to clothe himself with our humanity. He has come so close as to experience our pain and suffering. He has come so close as to experience life in a fallen world. He has come so close as to bear our sin and guilt. He has come so close as to taste death for us. The incarnation, the dwelling of God's glory among us, is the focal point of God's eternal plan. It led, his understanding of this, led Martin Luther to declare on numerous occasions, don't give me God without giving me his humanity. Don't give me God without giving me his humanity. The glory of God has drawn near, nigh, through the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Might I add, what an, what an encouragement for the unbeliever to believe. If you're here, if you're not a believer, what an encouragement for the unbeliever to repent and believe. That, that, that over here we have, we have a righteous God, the sovereign, blessed and only sovereign. And over here we have you, a rebellious sinner. And there is alienation, there is separation, there is no, no relationship And there is absolutely nothing you can do to please a righteous God as a rebellious sinner. What an encouragement. Friend, hear this, please. If if you've, if you've not got anything until this point, please get this. That there now stands a mediator between the righteous God and the rebellious sinner, the man, Christ Jesus, who at Calvary's cross bore your unrighteousness at Calvary's cross, bore God's righteous indignation. So that we don't have to find in ourselves, search within ourselves, look in ourselves for something by which we please God or merit his favor. No, we look outside of ourselves to the one who is altogether favorable and lovely in his sight, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe in him. We trust in him. Our hope is in him. Don't give me God without giving me his humanity. Also, I might add, what a wonderful encouragement for believers here uh, to simply rest. God has clothed himself with our humanity. That means he knows what it is like to be hungry. He knows what it is like to be weary. He knows what it is like to face temptation, experience betrayal, encounter injustice, suffer abandonment. As Mary weeps over her dead brother, Lazarus, at the tomb, we see and we hear the Lord Jesus weeping. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do not give me God without giving me his humanity. Second point of application is this. God calls us to a self-denying pursuit of his pleasure. He calls us to a self-denying pursuit of his pleasure. The remnant are involved in a difficult work. The remnant are involved in a less than glorious work. The remnant are the objects of ridicule. The remnant cannot see where this is going. They cannot see any fruit of this. They, they, they think it's pointless. It's pointless. And they've been called to expend themselves. They've been called to give themselves. They've been called to devote themselves to hard work, sacrificing, self-denial. Friend, understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ has called us to precisely the same. You see, we live in between his two advents. The problem with some people is they have an over-realized eschatology. They think it should be all happy-clappy now. Not so. The Lord Jesus has pointed us the way, hasn't he? The cross. The cross is the way God saves us, but understand this true friend. The cross is the way God shows us how he works among us. Just as Christ triumphs, triumphed through suffering, we only triumph through suffering. Just as Christ conquered through weakness, we only conquer through weakness. And so he commands us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Carnally speaking, we would rather rationalize that away. We would like to rationalize it away because we're worried about what it might actually mean for us. We, The flesh, the carnal man. We want a Christ who winks at materialism, embraces casual commitment, accepts us just the way we are, doesn't make any demands, wants us to be happy above all else doesn't expect us to forsake our closest relationships, give away all we possess, place ourselves in dangerous situations. We don't want a Christ who calls us to self-denial, but a Christ who calls us to self-fulfillment. He does not call us to self-fulfillment. He does not call us to a life of ease and comfort. He calls us to a self-denying pursuit of his pleasure, and he promises whoever loses his life for my sake will save it the third point of application is this god gives three here's a mouthful disappointment vanquishing promises to his people god gives three disappointment vanquishing promises to his people the first is the reality of his presence he is in our midst what does it imply Possessing and protecting, guarding and guiding, cherishing and challenging, supporting and sustaining. What an encouragement, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Second, disappointment, vanquishing promise is this, the immovability of God's kingdom. We possess a kingdom, brothers and sisters, that cannot be shaken. It is immovable. It is unalterable. It cannot be shaken by doctrinal heresy. It cannot be shaken by military invasions. It cannot be shaken by higher criticism. It cannot be shaken by liberalism. It cannot be shaken by the rise and fall of societies and civilizations. It cannot be shaken by the very gates of hell. Our kingdom is immovable. And the third Disappointment, vanquishing promise is this, the certainty of God's purpose. The certainty of God's purpose. The final consummation. Brother, sister, a day is coming when God will renew the heavens and the earth. The curse will be removed. The creation will be regenerated. Paradise will be restored. A day is coming when former things won't be remembered. There will be no sound of weeping. There will be no cry of distress. A day is coming when the wolf and the lamb will graze together. There will be universal peace, harmony, tranquility. No tension, no division, no turmoil, no conflict. A day is coming when death will be no more. We will put on immortality. It will be impossible for us to die because it will be impossible for us to sin. A day is coming when God will be the everlasting light. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It will shine in every crevice and it will shine on every creature. A day is coming when a glorified heaven and earth will be occupied by a culturally diverse multitude of glorified people who will worship the Lamb forever. Our great God and glory above, how that is our hope and our expectation. We praise you, our Father, because you promise that uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word. Uh, We have heard your word. Your word has been read. Your word has been explained. Your word has been declared. Your word has been applied. We pray, our Father, that through hearing, there might be some here right now in whose hearts you might birth faith. In whose hearts you might produce faith through the hearing of your word. We pray that you would prick their conscience with the seriousness and severity of their sin. We pray that you would open their mind's eye to behold the wonder of the gospel. We pray that you would turn their hearts, the affections of their hearts, from their sin and idolatry to worship you, the one true living God. And So, too, our Father, there are many of your children here right now, and we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And for them, we do ask that their faith, as they have heard, might be enlarged, might be strengthened, that they might see you with spiritual eyes beyond the here and now and see you and all glorious and all powerful and all sovereign God accomplishing and working out your eternal plans and purposes in the history of man. We pray this, our Father, we ask it for the hallowing of your name and for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In the matchless name of Christ, we do pray. Amen.